I'm Lauren. And I'm Eric. Over the past year, we've connected dozens of classic She-Ra episodes to modern progressive issues. But we're not done yet. In this second season of our show, I'm no longer a newbie to Etheria. This year, we're taking a higher level view of the characters and issues that face the Princess of Power. We're as interested as ever in how those issues connect to our current political landscape. So join us as we look back to the 80s and forward to the Netflix reboot of one of our favorite cartoons. This, this is, is She-Ra, Progressive, Progressive of Power. Hi, everybody. Welcome to She-Ra, Progressive of Power for another week. I'm pretty sure I'm Eric. I'm quite confident I'm Lauren. Very good. It's and kind of a sleepy Sunday. It it's, is. It's possible. It's, an, it's a nice day out, though. Yeah. Uh, weather talk is kind of like admittedly boring, but we've been waiting in Chicago for warm weather for so long that I find it really exciting right now. Yeah, um, but you're right. This is pretty hacky. So let's not talk about the weather. Let's talk about Infinity War. No, wait, we probably shouldn't. <gasps> I haven't seen it. Oh, my God, Lauren, you have to see it. It's so good. Uh, I loved it. I was on the edge of my seat the whole time. Eight stars. That's my official review. Eight stars out of how many? Uh, six. No, I don't know. But I, I really liked it. Um, so we're doing something a little different and interesting for the next few episodes, which is instead of having guests, Lauren and I are going to be the guests because we're talking about topics that are kind of central to our very inclusion in the nerd realm in the first place. So we're going to do an episode about costuming and an episode about music. And the reason why that's important is because I think Lauren's probably here today because of her cosplay expertise. And I'm here today because... I know and love music. So let's talk about it. Lauren, How explain your background with, uh, with cosplay and costuming. Oh, goodness. I have been a cosplayer since, I would say, 2000. When I started high school, I met some really nerdy friends, and one of their moms made us costumes to go to the Anime Central convention with. They were from an anime called Outlaw Star, and I just, I was a really judgmental sort of jerk of a child, uh, to no one's surprise. And I remember feeling like this really generous mom did such a kind thing for these four girls. And yet I didn't love my costume. And I really thought, gosh, this is such a cool art form. And I know I could do better and how much, how, how much excitement would I feel and how much pride would I feel if I were making these things for myself and didn't need the help of anyone's mom or any of my friends and I just knew, how, knew these skills. And so uh, I asked for a sewing machine. And for the next uh, four to eight years <laughs> was the bane of my mother's existence as I proceeded to destroy her basement uh, to this day. They don't live in that house anymore, but there's hot glue in the carpet and there's fabric dye stained in the basement bath. And I just I just went buck wild for for cosplay. Uh, it's 2018. So 18 years of costume making. And that's kind of how you uh, came into the, the nerd scene right through Geek Girl Chicago. You were primarily known as a cosplayer first, right? I guess so. Yeah. Um, I had that blog for a long time. I did Geek Girl Chicago for more than five years. Um, it was with Chicago Now, which is the Tribune's blog network. And just some Chicago-related news. Some stuff has gone down at the Tribune. Like, they sold that section of the company and renamed it Trunk. 
and then uh, took. Uh, my understanding is they took all of the um, blogger payments away. I, I'm not around there anymore. Um, I kind of saw the writing on the wall and, and ditched it before the Tribune politics got too hot. But uh, yeah, I started Geek Girls Chicago as sort of a events blog. And most of what I was covering, especially in the beginning, was uh, cosplay at conventions. And so I would go to C2E2 and Wizard World and all of the above and just spend the whole weekend trying to photograph as many costumes as I could uh, while also wearing costumes of my own. And that blog evolved to be about a lot more stuff. I became a reviewer of products and a reviewer of theater. And I put a lot more of my own personal editorial stuff in there later. But it did have its fair share of costuming tutorials and makeup tutorials, because that's what costuming became for me. Once I learned how to sew, uh, I used cosplay as an outlet to make more skills or learn more skills. And so I would choose a costume that required me to make a mask and then I would learn mask making or uh, this one has armor. So now I have to teach myself how to make armor uh, and gathered a, a pretty wide arsenal of sort of artistic things that I can do now having learned them through cosplay. So I don't actually cosplay nearly as often as I used to. Um, <laughs> my my life has sort of moved into a different direction with, with podcasting and wanting to start my own business and go back to school. Uh, but I still have all of those skills. And so if I ever need to like whip up a weapon or whip up a necklace a real quick, I can do it. And I still accept paid gigs for my friends at Lakeshore Beverage. I still dress up as Daenerys Targaryen whenever Brewery Omegang releases a new Game of Thrones beer, for example. Uh, and I'm hoping to finish my She-Ra costume for next Halloween. I didn't finish it this time, but I still have a bunch of like half-baked armor and a giant sword sitting waiting for my uh, attention. Nice. So it's not a stretch to say that kind of one of the big reasons you're here is because of your costuming expertise in the way that it... You know, the journey that life takes us all on, really. But yeah, that's great. Yeah. So as we're looking at the bigger picture topics of She-Ra, Princess of Power, Lauren thought it would be cool to do an episode about costuming because she knows a lot about it and because it's important to the way that the show portrays characters and the way that they're coded and designed. And I don't know, it's really interesting. So we have lined up two episodes today, one of which is a bit of a throwaway that I feel like we had to talk about somewhere. The other one just gives us a smorgasbord of characters to dissect. So we're going to talk about Jungle Fever, uh, which says a lot already, and Sweet Bee's Home. Yes. Uh, I was really worried about doing Jungle Fever just from some of the screenshots I saw of the costuming. And so my first note under Jungle Fever is, oh no, oh no, oh no before I even started it. Turned out, you know, maybe not as bad as I thought, but that's also because I started really, really worried. Yeah, it's, I agree. The episode isn't as disastrous as it could be with that title, but there's some interesting stuff going on there um, that I don't know if it makes it better or worse, but we'll talk about it. So my first note is Penis Copter. Yes, Return of Penis Copter yeah. is written on my paper. Yep, that's back. But as far as the costuming, my note about that is... The jungle people look like Kiss meets Blackface. 
Yeah, I wrote native stereotype plus African tribal stereotype. It's just like the the best slash worst of both worlds. Yeah, so to quickly recap this episode, in Jungle Fever, Adora's out for a stroll and gets ambushed by the horde. And for some reason, this time it totally works and she has nowhere to go. So she's taken to Beast Island. But then amazingly just escapes through a giant ventilation duct in her cell that seems like it took no work or effort whatsoever. She ends up swinging from a vine to escape from the prison and falls and gets amnesia, which is kind of an interesting plot. So she doesn't know that she's She-Ra or even who she is. And she ends up retreating to the jungle nearby where a jungle tribe of like beast warriors, not to be confused with transformers, find her and take her in. But there's one guy in the tribe who's suspicious and thinks that, you know, because she's trying to teach him, like, oh, you don't need to harm beasts. You can coexist with the animals. And he's like, no, I don't know about this. I'm going to go talk to my buddy from outside the jungle who turns out to be Hordak. So he tells Hordak the strangers come. Hordak figures out it's Adora and sends Grizzlore and Ratlore to capture her. Uh, Adora gets her memory back in time to turn into She-Ra and not only stop the villains and bring peace to the village and the animals, but also, like, solve a water crisis that is the reason the animals and the villagers were fighting in the first place. End of story. But the interesting thing about Jungle Fever is that the name obviously connotes a very uncomfortable topic. Uh, And looking at our Bible, as we do, you can see that these jungle people were designed to be people of color, but they're not in the show. I mean, they're darker than Shira is. They're darker, but they are not I wouldn't call them black. So if you have the Dark Horse book at home, Lauren, what page are you on? I am on page 484. Yeah, and these are designs by Bruce Tim, Batman the Animated Series production fame. And uh I don't know, the characters quite clearly look as though they're supposed to be uh very African inspired to me. Yeah, there's some uh hairstyles and Definitely just some of the iconography even on these outfits that didn't make it to the final cut. Yeah, I think you're right. What it ended up being is they're kind of just like generically tribal slash African, which, I mean, also, like you said, it doesn't end up being quite as cringy as it could be. And I don't know whether it would have been better or worse to make this like a more like darker skinned tribe of colored people. I don't know. Well, the episode still suffers from one major problem, Mm -hmm. which, you know, regardless of how dark their skin is, they're still sort of treated like these uneducated others. And She-Ra definitely just like white saviors into the picture and changes their culture with her vast knowledge of the natural world, which is somehow stronger than the knowledge of the people who live in the natural world constantly. Yeah, I had the very same note. She's like, you don't have to battle the animals. They just want peace. And they're like, oh, okay. Like, but this is their home. They've been here for centuries. Also, animals do eat other animals. And She-Ra doesn't seem aware of that. It's a whole, it's a whole thing. Also, these dinosaurs have freeze-ray freeze breath, which is pretty impressive. She's so fast. But not fast enough to avoid the beast's freeze-ray. <laughs> So I do want to kind of jump back a little bit to the point in the plot where these tribal characters can become 
beast warriors. They become beast warriors by slaying, I think, a, a large beast. And so Shira ends up saying, there's no bravery in fighting animals. And later on, also mentions that even though she has amnesia, her sword is not for killing. And so I find it very interesting, for one, to connect it to politics that are going on right now. Donald Trump seems really big on uh, deregulating uh, like hunting-related laws. He just uh, signed an executive order that supposedly will re-allow hunters to kill uh, animals, particularly baby animals, bears, while they're sleeping. And so there is something here that's good in terms of fairness. Like, what is a fair way to treat an animal or what is a fair way to confront the natural world? And I think the natives here definitely have it wrong in, like, just killing not in self-defense for sport. But Shira has it wrong, too, in that Shira seems to think that if everyone just left everyone else alone, animals would never hurt each other. <laughs> also false. And th- that is definitely an awkward part of the episode that she, with almost no effort, and in fact with amnesia, just like brings around the whole heart of a village who and completely alters their way of life. Can we talk about amnesia for a second? Just a quick pause. I felt very nostalgic watching this episode because I feel like amnesia was such a common plot trope in the late 80s and early 90s cartoons. I remember amnesia coming up on cartoons and soap operas all the time in that era. And it was a thing that as a child, I remember being really worried might happen to me because I was seeing it in media all the time. And I'm trying to think, like, what are some of those other tropes that because of cartoons you thought were going to be a problem? Another one for me would definitely be quicksand. Mm, oh, yeah. <laughs> There's going to be quicksand everywhere in, in the world, according to cartoons. I think hypnotism was a big one, yeah. which is not real. And it's kind of a cool plot device for Adora to have to deal with because knowing who she is also unlocks her power. And I like that this episode has a lot of Adora in it. I just... As, you know, we've been talking about, I don't think it deploys her in the most ethical way necessarily. Well, speaking of her knowing who she is, I think this was a bit of a callback to the pilot because one of the things she does to unfortunately, you know, educate these natives to her superior knowledge is she takes Tandi out into the jungle and says, just watch the animals. I believe the quote is... Uh, see the animals in a different way. And that reminds me of when she herself went out to see the horde in a different way in the pilot. And it was sort of her getting to see what was really happening in the world, giving her a change of heart. And that is such a cool plot device. And I wish it were used in a better way because I'm very moved by that being a tactic of Adora's now, something that she goes back to. I just wish it weren't used on like Let me teach these natives how to live their lives better. Yikes. No! You won't change my mind about being a beast warrior. No? I'll tell you what, Tandy. Let's go for a walk in the jungle. Maybe we can both get to see the animals in a different way. Here is where the beast warriors fight the creatures to keep them from drinking the water. But, Tandy, the creatures must drink, too. But there isn't enough water for the animals and us. So let's let's talk about... A little more in detail of the costuming aspect because we do have, like, this show, I think, or this episode is a great example of how the show takes design shortcuts to 
say a lot um, in in just you know a, a suggested costume. And I don't know if it's, if what it's saying is great, but we learn a lot about these people just from seeing them. I think. Right. So I wrote down a bunch of things that I think costuming at its best should do. And one of them is definitely affiliation. Uh, You know, who are you and who are you aligned with? Who is your team, if you will? And tribe costumes always do an effective job of that by making a group of people look alike. I I think it's clumsily done when it's trying to make a group of people look primitive or even inferior. But if we want to get into, do they all look like they're from the same culture? Do they all look like they're on the same team? Yes. Something that was interesting about them also was the use of color. Uh, Each individual had sort of a different theme color that they chose. Like one person would be in like a purple loincloth and would have a purple streak in their hair. And that's such an interesting choice. And I wish they would have told us more about why that was, because I feel like I would have been more forgiving of these costumes, which definitely are just sort of native slash African fusion stereotype hybrids, if they had given some reason to the or, or some world building behind some of the choices. Uh, the color thing, I felt like maybe the Beastmasters are a certain color or something, but they never got into it. Did you catch any of that? No, I, I mean, I think that it probably was a choice to just to distinguish so there wasn't one color palette, but in the same way that like you want to know in Star Wars why some lightsabers are green, blue, purple, red. I mean, I think you can figure that out without too much difficulty, but there's probably a similar story in the village that we're just not given. You know what else we're not given in the village? What? Women. Oh, like, you're right. There's one, I caught one woman in like a loincloth in some of the crowd scenes, but... Man, yeah. I don't think I know. I don't think I saw any. You are, you are you are right. She's like hidden, uh, which is also interesting. Like the way that this tribe is is coded, it's almost like hunter gatherer. I mean, we don't really know enough about how they live, but yeah, it doesn't seem like there's a big feminine presence in their world. Absolutely, one place that I think should be shocking, but in this particular universe, the masters of the universe universe, if you will, is not, is the use of natural materials. So they have fur on and they have feathers on. And normally that's such a clear indicator. Like these are primitive people. They're earthy and live off of the land. But He-Man and even uh <laughs> the, our, our main villains, I mean, Hordak, I think Skeletor even, I mean, they're all rocking fur loincloths. And so that's just kind of a part of the aesthetic of this whole universe. And so I think the effectiveness of that was actually sort of watered down, you know? Oh, that's interesting, right? Because it's harder to code as primitive when everyone has a same kind of fashion sense. Right. Well, and similarly, I think normally I would see the near nudity of these people as another sort of code for their primitive, their ways are uneducated or inferior in some way because, look, they don't even know to clothe themselves. But half the people on this show, including He-Man again, are walking around near naked. So that was an interesting sort of question that I, I left this episode with was, 
couldn't we have done a better job with these costumes because we leaned so far into tribal stereotypes and native stereotypes without seemingly examining what already existed in this world with our other main characters that I don't think they got their message across at all. But maybe that's why it was less cringeworthy for me. Had these tribal characters in these same costumes come into a universe where everyone was fully clothed and in armor and looking super different from them, it would have been way worse. It's not great, but it could have been way worse. I think that's where I land, too, is that, yeah, this episode doesn't go as far as it could in differentiating the tribal folks, and that probably is ultimately for the better. Like, the storytelling may suffer a little, but the messages that it's sending are probably for the best. So that's okay. But yeah, I agree. Not a great episode, but boy, with a title like Jungle Fever, you're prepared for the absolute worst. And it was passable. There were some good moments. If she's a beast warrior, then let her kill the creature. Kill? No. Somehow... I know this sword is not for killing. One other thing I want to briefly call attention to is, uh, I mean, I know this was from about 30 years ago now, but the idea that the jungle people live in a in an area that both has a shortage of water and is prone to catching on fire, I couldn't help but think that the writers were, like, using their Southern California lifestyle to inform this environment. Oh, sure. Maybe. I hadn't thought of it that way. I had, uh, (laughs) incidentally, to go back to the what were the things you were worried about in the 80s and 90s, Smokey the Bear had made us really aware of forest fires. And so I just saw that as, here's another thing that kids are pretty worried about in the late 80s. But uh, I I could get down with that California message, too. Yeah, I don't know whether wildfires were as big in California as they were earlier this year, where you see those like horrifying photos of cars driving in to a blaze, but I don't know. It's always been a desert there, so totally possible. I can see in a really dark way why this tribe ended up sort of affiliated or befriending Hordak. Uh, Hordak has a line early in the episode, and he says, you're not supposed to have ideas He loves enslaving and bossing around large populations of people, which we're going to see in the next episode, too. And so it's it's really um, striking to me that Hordak already kind of has his his thumb on these people and he gets to be the lens through which the tribe sees the world. That's something I wish we would have explored more. Shira kind of solves this water crisis, but she doesn't solve the fact that most of their understanding of society comes from the bad guys. Yeah, that was the one thing, or one of the things I thought was pretty interesting too, was I think Korg is the main like dissenting voice. He already has contact with Hordak, and that feels of a part of the strategy we've already discussed that the Horde employs of like, find the indigenous uh, societies and exploit the conflicts there. Like, of course, Hordak would already be buddies with Korg because Korg is already a dissenter. Hordak sees that that's his in, and Korg sees that there's, like, this world of power out there that he could also exploit. So, yeah, I thought I thought that was kind of cool. No council tells Korg what to do. Come, I know someone who might be interested in our new beast warrior. Jamila doesn't know it, but there are powerful men living beyond the borders of the jungle. They're called the Horde. 
I have already met them and learned about the outer world. They may know more than we do about our new beast warrior. So, Jungle Fever shows us a group of people whose costuming really puts them in one culture and on one team. Not super great in terms of the uh, native populations and African tribal populations on our actual planet, but I see what they were trying to do. The next episode we're going into has a ton of our rebellion characters, and they have pretty different looks, each one of them. Um, And I think the rebellion is doing sort of an opposite thing, where everyone is dressed to their own strengths and their own personalities, as opposed to, you know, there's no rebellion uniform. So let's get into our next episode, which is Sweet Bee's Home. This is a beloved fan classic. I really liked it, yeah. Some of it... (laughs) There's a lot of creepy women in this episode. That's all right. Uh, Sweet Bee's Home starts with uh, a spacecraft floating over Etheria. And I don't think it's actually going to land. I think it's just sort of doing an information gathering mission. But Hordak, uh, ever enterprising, shoots it out of the sky. And Sweet Bee, in her ship, ends up crashing into the water. And there's sort of a race between the Horde and the Rebellion to who can capture the ship and its pilot first. And to aid the Rebellion in getting there, we get to see Frosta and Mermista and even a swan by the name of Enchanta, some of those uh, fantastic, lesser-known, cool toy characters that uh, I love a lot. So He-Man also happens to be visiting, Frosta likey He-Man very much, uh, and it's very weird, and we'll get into that in a second. Uh, They eventually pursue the crashed ship into a sort of icy, frozen, um, arctic area of the planet, and they get Sweet Bee, the Rebellion gets Sweet Bee out of her ship, but then Hordak is the one who captures the ship. So Sweet Bee ends up with the good guys, but her way out is with the bad guys. We learn that Sweet Bee is uh, a representative of a hive race of over 10,000 people who are looking for a new planet to live on because their planet, I think, was consumed by a supernova. Is that the plot point? It kind of kryptoned. Yeah, it's just gone now. And so they have this flying hive. They're seeking a new home. Uh, and... Even though Shira says, you can't land here, this is a, a sort of world in war and it's dangerous for you, Hordak has decided in his normal style that he's going to enslave this entire race of people. So Shadow Weaver uh, does a sort of shape-shifting thing, looks like Sweet Bee, and tells Sweet Bee's people, come on down, it's safe here, it's great. So the race then becomes a race to tell Sweet Bee's people, no, no, turn it around, don't come here. So the final sort of mission in this episode is to retrieve Sweet Bee's ship so she can communicate with her people in time. (laughs) There's a really like kind of slapsticky sequence where Shadow Weaver is frozen into a giant bowling ball and thrown around. Uh, And the climax of the episode is Hordak blows up the engines of Sweet Bee's ship so it doesn't look like she's going to be able to ever leave or warn her people. Uh, Thankfully, 
He-Man and She-Ra are so strong that they're able to just throw the ship back into space. And uh, Sweet Bee's people and the Hive have to continue their search for a new home. There were so many characters in this episode. Yes, there's it was a lot, hard to keep track of. There's a lot to talk about with costuming, which is cool. I totally forgot Mermista was in this episode, too. But I'm glad that she was because I think it was important to have a non-familial woman who wasn't caught up in a romantic plot here. And so she kind of held that role. Yeah. I, <laughs> the reason I said there's a lot of like creeping going on in this episode, we already knew that Frosta really has it bad for He-Man. Well, that was cast a Spella. We have not seen Frosta in Oh, really? He-Man. Yeah. Everyone likes He-Man, Gosh. apparently. I, <laughs> I don't think it says good things about the costuming of this show, to be honest, that I'm confused about, like, which hot babe likes He-Man. The answer is all of them. Uh, so she's really just physically on him constantly. And what bothered me was he repeatedly asked She-Ra for help. Like, hey, sis, give me a hand here. This woman's making me uncomfortable. And She-Ra sort of treats it like a joke the whole time. Uh, but then, you know, maybe by some metrics, He-Man is sort of getting a taste of his own medicine because we quickly see him employ some of the same tactics on Sweet Bee, who he has the hots for. So really, it's just everyone sort of clumsily grabbing at each other for an entire episode. Yeah, this is a real comedy of errors, minus Mermista, who gets to just be like the the chill lady in back. I And the, the uh, reason this episode is so beloved is because of that and because the direction by Tom Tataranowitz is so expressive. Like, the animation really goes above and beyond. Um, according to our Bible, there's a woman named Sherry Wheeler who would always be asked to animate the scenes that like would push filmation's normal stock system so all the like interesting facial expressions and stuff uh those are all courtesy of sherry there's a really great part where probably my favorite of like the asides is when during the bowling ball sequence mermista's like way to get those robots he man and then frosta like mean mugs at her and mermista just rolls her eyes yeah, there's a couple of those. There's one where He-Man is comforting Sweet Bee and telling her what a sweet name she has and how she's surrounded by good friends. And then in the foreground, we see Frosta sort of like mugging to the camera and like mimicking He-Man's crappy voice. Yes. There's a lot of stone cold just like shade being thrown in this episode. Also, to the credit of the animators here, I really loved seeing that uh, He-Man Frosta team up when Frosta says make a wave and He-Man uses his strength to kick up a bunch of water and then Frosta freezes it. That's sort of the collaboration that I wish happened more on this show, both between the Rebellion members, but also the Horde generals. I feel a lot like combining our strengths would have a lot of benefits and looks really cool on the uh, animation side, too. That was that was super cool. I do have to say, on the whole, I prefer Frosta better as a monarch than a suitor. I thought um, in... What was the Black Snow that we watched with Sean Kelly? She was very composed. She was like kind of a hard ass. She was very like demure and looking out for her people. And this episode, she's pretty much just like, I got to have me a man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which kind of raises some questions about how the upcoming Netflix show is going to be. Before we started recording, Eric mentioned. Uh, maybe some of these characters, Mermista and Frosta, will be the princesses of power that are named in the title of the show. 
And that seems really likely to me. Uh, And I would also like that to imply that they all are sort of uh, leaders. You know, they're leading their people, protecting their realms. I'd I'd really love to see more of that sort of strength of character. Uh, You know, romance subplots are fine, but everyone was sort of the same in their tactics in this one in terms of pursuing the object of their affections. I guess I will say, doubling back a little bit, if there is one character who ends up being kind of the flirt or the the always hungry for love, I think it like it's a nice tribute to the writers and directors of the original show if it becomes Frosta, because clearly they're all obsessed with Frosta. They think she's the hottest. So I would be fine with her legacy being... She's the the sex-obsessed one, if there is one. Yeah, I could see her being a very sort of empowered and sexy character in the way that a glimmer is a more sort of young, like trying to get her first boyfriend type character. I think there's room for that. Either one of them could also be seeking a girlfriend, too. That would be very refreshing to me. Uh, I will say personal opinion. Frost is not the sexiest one to me, but she's definitely the most powerful. Like, she just lays waste to the enemies with these powers, whereas Glimmer just kind of has lights. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Her power level is absurd. And I don't want to get too far for myself in the rabbit hole of talking about which two-dimensional cartoon characters are the most attractive. But I do feel like they, and you can speak to this as a topic of the episode, I feel like they draw and design Frosta to be the most sexualized in the way that her hair kind of like falls around her and her her dress is very, um, I don't know, there's so, it's so low cut. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, looking at the Bible in front of us, Sweet Bee's Home is page 548, and I'm looking at the images of Frosta next to the images of Sweet Bee. Most of the rebellion is, I think, costumed to show near identical amounts of skin. Everyone has is showing their shoulders. Everyone is showing cleavage. Everyone's showing a lot of leg. Uh, and even if they're wearing leggings or pants of some kind, it's all very form-fitting. So everyone looks very thin and svelte. And, uh, you know, muscular as far as women are allowed to be on this show. But to your point, Frosta's design is super angular. She's got uh, a cape that is jagged on the bottom and her gloves sort of come to a point and her skirt comes to several points. And so I think they are going for that more sort of mature, edgy, empowered, sexy, whereas obviously Sweet Bee is showing the same amount of skin and has beautiful wavy hair, but all of her stuff is soft. She's got soft waves, round wings, round antennas. <laughs> they were clearly very intentional, I think, designing these two opposite of one another. They have a lot in common, but if you're just going for shapes and the the attitude that those shapes sort of uh, project, they, they wanted these two to be rivals. They definitely did. And we see that reflected in their status in the show, too, because Frosta is a monarch. And as you said, she's super powerful. Like, her ice magic takes out a bunch of troopers and Shadow Weaver pretty much all by herself or with He-Man's help. Whereas Sweet Bee is portrayed as, like, a helpless victim, even to the point of, like, at no point does anyone in this episode raise the idea that the Bee people could fight the Horde. They're all just like, no, if you come here, you'll be slaves. And it's taken as a given. 
Yeah, they're very much treated like refugees, and they don't want to take in a bunch of helpless refugees in a time of war. But Sweet Pea has powers. We see her, um, they're, they're much more utility. She makes a ladder and she makes a fence, but she has supernatural powers in the way that everyone else does. And I agree with you that they're sort of counted out as potentially useful. Yeah, it's a stark contrast to the rock people, which I guess the rock people immediately present as being super strong. So everyone's like, oh, we can use you. But instantly, which this scene is pretty funny, where He-Man immediately is like, yes, you can settle on Etheria. And she is <laughs> like, mm, no, you can't. It's not Eternia. But that also begs the question, well, why can't they just go to Eternia then? Adam could probably make that happen. Yeah, I mean... We've seen portals between both worlds get opened up. I, I feel like it's definitely a possibility. I hadn't even thought of that. Gosh, Adam, you're whiffing this. You, you, could, you could have sweet beer around all the time. See, I'm a scout for the hive. A giant colony ship filled with my people. We built it to escape destruction when our sun exploded into a supernova. I was sent out to find a planet, one where my people could live. When I saw this planet, I thought I'd succeeded. Guess I was wrong. Don't say that, sweet bee. Your people can settle here. Right, Shira? Wrong, He-Man. This is not Eternia, my brother. This is Etheria, ruled by the evil Horde. If sweet bee's people come here, Hordak will surely enslave them. Do you want to say anything about um, the costuming of He-Man, Shira, and Mermista while we're at it? Yes, so... Two more things on my list of what costuming at its best should do. One is uh, emphasize strengths. And I think both in a, a, an actual true way, but also in a this would make a cool toy sort of way, uh, our rebellion members are dressed to their strengths. So we not only see your He-Man types uh, dressed to really show off their muscles because they're a physical character, but uh, Mermista is designed in such a way that her tail and uh, that, that can transform into legs is sort of a real emphasized part of her costume. Uh, when we see Frosta, her sort of frost-colored gloves in a sort of modern Disney Elsa way, I think really emphasizes her hands and her ability to shoot uh, ice powers from there. Uh, but the Horde generals really do this too, like Scorpia's tail very much an important part of her look. And Catra, whose main power is transform into a literal panther, her costume has a sort of cat ear mask thing going on. Everyone sort of wears these reminders of what they can do. Neither side really has a uniform. They don't look like they're on the same team, but you can tell by kind of just looking at them, what do you think this character is going to do, both in a superhero way but if I got a Mermista toy, sort of with the shells over her chest, I'd get exactly what she was about, even if I'd never seen this show. And even if she had legs as the toy, you would understand, oh, she's a sea She's person. from the sea, yeah. The other one is, are these costumes useful? And one of the reasons I'm willing to cut Shira so much slack uh, is the same reason that I, as a child, cut Sailor Moon so much slack is... Honestly, short skirts do allow you to run and do high kicks. That's just true. I mean, maybe maybe some leggings, but for, for warmth when we're in this terribly cold place would be useful. But in terms of just a combat character, I have 
personally no problem with the skirts being short. That's mobility. On the flip side, though, capes. I don't think capes are actually that useful. <laughs> I, I can imagine capes just getting caught on stuff in the whispering woods or capes getting grabbed by the horde when they're trying to capture these people. And Frosta's cape especially is super long. It's almost floor length. Um, I haven't seen it, but isn't there a character in The Incredibles who's like a fashion designer and super hates capes? There is, yes. Um, I... I don't remember that character's name, but that is true. Yeah, I, I think I think that is a true <laughs> costume commentary. Superheroes should let those go. Well, they also, now that that's like become, as readers become slightly more sharp, like in the DC comics, that's kind of a point is like Batman pointedly wears a cape as a distraction, but everyone's like, Bruce, like you're going to get yourself killed because of this cape. And he's like, no, no, it's. You know, it's part of the whole thing. And Superman wears a cape because of the family symbology and because it doesn't fucking matter because he's Superman. Like, he can take the hit. If there's one character that it won't hinder, it is definitely Superman. Right. But, like, there aren't really any other characters in the DC universe who wear a cape for that reason because tactically it is not uh, not optimal. I don't know if I mentioned this on this show before or not, but I'm going to mention it again. We don't really understand where She-Ra's cape attaches. So I know this because I've been trying to make this ding-dang costume and it doesn't come forward around her neck. But when she's shot from the back, it comes all the way up over her shoulders. But you can see that her shoulders are bare from the front and her hair is always drawn in such a way that that connector is hidden. And that has to be intentional on on, on the part of the animators. They just didn't decide where this thing is actually attached to. So I kind of imagine it's just like glued to her shoulders or something. Or maybe, you know... Does she what what's she what's she wearing around her neck? She has a choker. Maybe it's attached to her choker in some sort of way that you know, the way it's lying in back doesn't match that though. You guys, you messed up with this design. I think that's how the toys did it was through the choker, but I could be wrong. Although interesting sidebar, we could have mentioned at the top, Lauren found that uh the Super 7 collectors guys are doing like vintage style He-Man and She-Ra toys, but designed like the cartoon characters this is very exciting yeah i haven't pre-ordered mine yet because there's a big part of me that assumes someone's going to buy that for me at some point because right now when it comes to what people give me it's padme from star wars which i mentioned on a previous episode oswald the lucky rabbit from disney and masters of the universe and she-ra stuff Uh, i already have a she-ra pin and a he-man pin that were given to me since i started this show I gotta leave those gift-giving options open, I guess. (laughs) Uh, One more thing that I wanted to mention about He-Man and functionality is I think for the first time in this episode, I got a good look at the sheath on his back and how his sort of really sexy harness actually does have a point and that it is a large and, like, sturdy sheath for his sword. And I guess... That, that had to be there. He pulls the sword from the back every time he uses it. But I was glad to just see it and be reminded that there's a reason he's wearing this weird harness over his body. I don't know why he can't just wear his, shor- his sword at his hips, but I'm not the boss of him. I am the power! 
A comedic costuming point in this episode is that the helmets are the worst. There are two helmets that come up in this episode. Uh, one, Sweet Bee is wearing a helmet on her spaceship, so theoretically she needs a helmet to breathe in space. And then Shira puts on a helmet to go underwater with Mermista. And in both cases, the helmets aren't connected to anything in the sense that their necks and shoulders and the rest of their costumes are still bare, like they always are. So they're not airtight or watertight. I mean, I guess I can buy that we're in some sort of future with a fantasy technology and it's sealed with something other than more costume. But I thought it was just hilarious that we were taking our normal costumes and just dropping a helmet on top and are like, now they can be in outer space. The water's fine now. Guys, it takes more than that. <laughs> Fantasy. Yeah, I'm being too picky. No, that's totally fair. Uh, and this is great like insight that I wouldn't have as this is not my area of expertise. Well, it says something about what choices were made on this show in regards to signaling something versus actually making it functional. And I'm just going to assume it's a ease of animation choice. We can signal that they're in outer space by just drawing a helmet on, and we can signal that they're underwater by doing the same. Are those functional costumes for the environment? No. But if I'm a kid watching the show, I immediately understand like where we are and the necessities of that environment. So... It's fine. It's literally just a 32-year-old costume grouch being like, they can't breathe right now, and I'm upset about it. Sword to helmet. Come on, Mermista. So maybe let me, uh, let me close with a two-part question to you as the expert in the room. What do you, what would you change about the way that the Princess of Power show does costuming, and what do you think that they they do well? Like, what could other costumey people look at and, and um, learn from these shows? So what they do well, I think I've already touched on, which is, in my opinion, they are really showing the strengths of each character. I think especially on a kid's show, being able to tell the story up front with costuming is really important. You can see with Frosta and Mermista and Flutterina and all these other characters, just with one glance, we know kind of where they're from, what their abilities might be, strengths and weaknesses, and then the story can build from there. A costume that does some of the storytelling for you is a really effective costume. And so I hope we see a lot of that tactic moving forward. Changes I would like to see, I think it would be uh, maybe more interesting if the Rebellion had some sort of thing that visually united them. I'm not super going to die on that hill, though. I do want to see more diverse body types uh, and no matter what your body type is, you can wear whatever you want. And so I don't think that necessarily affects the literal costuming, but it would affect the visual diversity of these characters. We keep joking about 
Like, who's the hottest character? And it's not that I'm objectifying these characters. It's that they all kind of look the same. It's a stupid conversation to have because they all look conventionally attractive. There's just marginal differences between them. They're all the hottest one. And it doesn't reflect reality. I want little girls watching this show to be able to see more body types, more skin tones, uh, even, you know, gender diversity that just reflects what's actually going on in today's uh, just home television audience. Lastly, armor. <laughs> it would be really nice to see uh, I buy into the skirts being short and that's fine. But if we're actually going into battle, I think there's a lot that could be done with a little bit of armor and a little bit of protection on these characters. We were clearly going with the He-Man universe, especially for this sort of ripped barbarian look. But that's less important for me in the She-Ra world. And if we're just doing a She-Ra cartoon that isn't beholden to He-Man in any way, I think we could go a little further into the wartime aesthetic the sort of rebellion aesthetic and see these women really wearing stuff that looks empowering and also like it would actually protect them. I don't love that all of their breasts and shoulders are exposed, not in a slut shamey way, but in a I don't want you to get hit with a sword or a laser beam sort of way. <laughs> I'd like them to actually be designed for the battles that they're in. I do want to ask you even though I'm quote-unquote the expert, you've been a fan of this show for years and years and years and years longer than I have, and you have very strong opinions about it. What would you like to see in the new show? Um, I think I agree with all of your points, uh, especially regarding armor and like practicality of wartime costuming. Uh, definitely diversity of body type. Like I think that there's an argument that, for instance, um, Sweet Bee probably looks fine the way she is body type-wise because you can imagine that a bee would be like a very lithe kind of thing. But there's no reason that Frosta can't be like actually buff. You know, like if they're going to keep her as this like super kind of strong, take no bullshit leader of a frost kingdom, you could you could make her as buff as He-Man. Like you could make her the bodybuilder, you know, and that would be cool. The one thing that I think is interesting, which brings us all the way back to our political topic, which this episode was light on, is the idea of like a visually consistent element for the rebels, only because that put me in the headspace of like safety pins and all of the kind of baggage that comes along with that. So I don't know how I feel about that in the end. I don't know whether I, I want them to have like a banner to rally behind or or whether just the action of them like being rebellious is good enough. Yeah, I guess I'd be happy either way. I do agree with what you have to say about Frosta, though. And back to our earlier discussion about Frosta maybe being a more empowered sort of sexy, that design doesn't have to be made then necessarily for the male gaze. It's weird that this is a show for girls seeing a lot of like male gazy looking designs. I don't think Frosta feels like she needs to have such a sexy outfit to be desirable. I think she knows she has other traits that make her desirable. Yeah, agreed. And the uh, to that point, one thing that I think is kind of interesting about this episode, I don't know if charming is the right word, but maybe in a quaint way, is that 
for 22 minutes, and you kind of got at this before, He-Man becomes the object of sexual desire. You know, so maybe maybe we'll see more of the female gaze in Noelle Stevenson's uh, view. There! That's the last of them. You were wonderful, He-Man. Just wonderful. I think it's worth bringing up one more point, and that is, again, to connect it to today's society or today's political scene. The United States just had its first uh, states dinner under the Trump presidency. It was for uh, President Macron from France. And I know I'm biased. (laughs) So I know I know that I'm reading the news out of this state's dinner in a biased way. So that's my disclaimer. But I don't recall any other state's dinner from any other presidency having so much coverage about what people were wearing, Um, you know, what Melania was wearing, who had a smoky eye in their makeup. I've never seen fashion designers named in this context before. And that's a very, for me, unpleasant thing that the Trump presidency has done for our politics is make it relevant what people were wearing around the president because, for one, I couldn't care less. And for two, I think it's so, so much harder for women in that environment. If you go back to Hillary Clinton, you know, women are either frumpy looking in politics or too sexy for politics, and there's just no right way to be. I don't want our political scene to become about costuming. I hope this isn't the beginning of a trend. But cartoons could put a little more thought into the costuming. <laughs> that would be A-OK. That's, that's, that's sort of where this podcast can actually be a little bit more playful. I think I'm always worried about whether or not we're over-politicizing people's nostalgia and we're over-analyzing people's nostalgia. And it's fine for the costumes to stay outlandish in, in, the, cost, in, in the cartoon world. That's, that's some place that we can stay as nostalgic and weird as we want to stay. Thanks for listening to she Progressive of Power. If you like our show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate it. You can also send in any feedback you have to our email address, progressiveofpower at gmail.com or to our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash progressive of power. You know, they always say dress for the job you want, which is a lesson the characters of Etheria seem to take to heart. Unfortunately, in the real world, some barriers exist that challenge people from dressing professionally and feeling empowered. Good thing there's organizations like Dress for Success, an international nonprofit that helps women achieve economic independence through professional attire and development tools. You better believe there's a Chicago chapter. They're everywhere. To learn more about this great organization and how you can help, visit dressforsuccess.org.